CR101radio.com, podcasts, and more. All right, so I don't know what class, is this number, what, class number five or six or something like that? Um, apologetics. We are going to review, we're going we're gonna to talk about the Bonson-Stein debate in order to review the transcendental argument for a little bit, and then we're going to move into some other things, okay? So, first of all, what did you guys think? What were some initial impressions of the debate? I thought, what was the the name of the Christian guy? Greg Bonson. So he he had like made more like logic arguments, and then the other guy would just kind of like argue back and be like, say like kind of one thing and like not really prove what he was trying to say, just trying to like show why what he just said wasn't logical but he wouldn't like really it just seemed like he was just talking and he wasn't really defending anything yeah okay what else what else do you guys think did you learn anything from it what was your impression of so i think raul's getting at something here stein the atheist did he seem to know what was going on in the debate that he seemed to actually engage with Bonson's argument. He kept arguing his own thing the whole time instead of responding to him. He was just like going off on his own separate Right. So I think Bonson might have said at some point, you know, when is Stein going to show up to the debate? Because ultimately he, he doesn't really deal with it. Remember Stein's opening statement dealt with a lot of arguments that Christians make. But he didn't deal with the transcendental argument, which is the very argument that Dr. Bonson made, yeah. right? So in the cross-examination, Bonson says, did I make any of the arguments that you uh, brought up? He's like, well, kind of, no, <laughs> not really. So his whole, it, he, he, it came out off really bad in the beginning um, for Stein. And I think, I think I want to talk about here the opening statement of Bonson for a little bit and then talk about the cross-examination. In fact... In a debate, in a, in a formal debate, the cross-examination is basically the most important part of the debate. Okay? You guys know what cross-examination is? It's when they ask each other mm-hmm. questions to try to poke holes in the other person's position and, and stuff. So let's, let's, we'll talk about the opening statement here. So, so first of all, what, what Bonston does here is really ordered and logical. Now, although you guys might be not involved in formal <coughs> debates ever, maybe you will, maybe you won't, when you're talking to somebody, you are, if you're going to do evangelism and apologetics, you are teaching. Okay, you think of it that way. You're, you're in effect, you're teaching somebody. It's not in a classroom. It's not in a, in a lecture hall. But it is communicating some knowledge to people. And what he does here is a really good example of laying out logically and clearly his position. He builds on it. Okay, so he defines what he's arguing for which is important. He's arguing for Christian theism, not just some generic theism, not just for some God, but for the Christian God, right? And he gives reasons for that. Um, He's saying you can't really argue for general theism because there's no such thing as general theism. There's all these different religions that have their own concepts of God, so you're arguing for something in particular. He says the non-Christian worldviews are incoherent, so I'm not going to argue for them. And he says, thirdly, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to argue for a religion that I don't believe in. Right? My convictions wouldn't allow that. Okay, so now he's already set forward. He's not arguing for some God, but he's arguing for Christianity. 
And that already is a big, important step that he takes, because remember what Stein ends up saying is, well, I don't accept that. I'm just going to argue against gods in general. Well, we're not talking about gods in general. We're talking about Christian theism. That's what we're defending. Um, this is really important, too. His, his other second point is that he's saying the issue of the debate is about the philosophical systems of Christian, the Christian worldview versus the naturalist, materialist, atheistic worldview that Stein is a proponent of. So what he's saying, it's not, it's not a matter of the personality of the people who hold to these worldviews. Right? It's not a matter of what Christians have done in history or what atheists have done in history. You ever heard arguments like that? Well, Christians did this, and that was really wrong. So Christianity is false. Or atheists, some atheists did that, so that shows atheism is wrong. Well, it, there's a logical disconnect between that. He's saying, no, the issue is the merits of the worldviews themselves. So basically, he's trying to cut out any sort of irrelevant you know, things like that so we can argue on the actual issues. Um, and then he gets into, um, into the argument basically. Um, and he talks about the transcendental argument. Now you guys remember which, um, which precondition of intelligibility does Bonson really focus on in the debate? You guys remember the laws of logic, right? The laws of logic. So he, you could pick any of them in a different debate that Bonson did with somebody else. He focused on uniformity of nature. Okay. You can pick whatever. They do touch upon ethics in this as well, uh, somewhere later in the debate. Um, so he argues and goes through, and he gives a, a transcendental argument, basically, for the laws of logic and shows how laws of logic cannot be um, accounted for in an atheistic, naturalistic worldview. Okay, So let's, let's right now, review this. What is the transcendental argument? You know, there are things that are immaterial that a lot of the materialistic worldviews cannot account for. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's like based on stuff, things of that nature that we can't hold or grasp or, or, or see with our eyes. Okay. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, you're on, you're on the right track. Remember, the transcendental argument is arguing for the truth of the Christian worldview because it's impossible for it to be false. And the way that you demonstrate that is to show that Non-Christian worldviews cannot account for the things that make knowledge possible, the preconditions of intelligibility or the preconditions for knowledge. In other words, the prerequisites for knowledge being possible. And these are things that are, that are really recognized by all. You need to have laws of logic in order to know anything. You need to have uniformity of nature to know things. You need to have basic reliability of your senses and, and your memory to know anything. Right. So we all, we all can say, yes, these things are necessary for knowledge. The question is, can your worldview give a reason for these things? Right? And what we're saying is, the Christian worldview is the only foundation that makes knowledge possible. So if you don't start with the Christian worldview, then your worldview cannot account for knowledge itself. Right? So basically, if the Christian worldview is... is um, if you, if you start with the Christian worldview as your presupposition, you can make sense out of knowledge. If you don't start with it, then you can't make sense out of anything at all. Right? Knowledge, knowledge would be impossible if the Christian worldview was false. But since knowledge is possible, the Christian worldview is true. And you can demonstrate that with any one of the preconditions of intelligibility. Dr. Bonson focused on the laws of logic. Okay? Does that make sense? You guys remember this? This ring bells? Okay. So... Let me get down here to the um, 
to the cross-examination. Um, skip over this part. When we talk about the laws of logic, um, yes. Hey, look here uh, where it says this, Dr. Bonson. Uh, I heard, so Dr. Bonson says, I heard you mention logical binds and logical self-contradictions in your speech. You did say that. And Stein says, I use that phrase, yes. Bonson says, do you believe there are laws of logic then? And he says, Stein says, absolutely. Bonson says, are they universal? What's that mean? Like, agreed upon by everybody, or just like, used. What he means probably is true everywhere. Because when we, remember, when we talked about laws of logic, they're abstract, they're not physical. They are um, not changing, and they're universal. They're true everywhere. Contradictions are always false in Tennessee, in Russia, and on the moon. No contradictions will ever be true anywhere, right? Because that's the law of non-contradiction. So he asks, are they universal? And science says, well, they are agreed upon by human beings. They aren't laws that exist out in nature. So he says, okay, so they're, they're simply conventions then? What's a convention in this context? Yeah, basically something to say, hey, you know what, let's just all agree that this is how it's going to be. Let's just like say together, yeah, we'll just say this, the law of non-contradiction is, is true. Let's just all agree on that. And that'll be a convention, something that we just agree on and, and kind of uh, use. Okay. So he says, so, so, Bonson says, so are they sociological laws or laws of thought? See, a sociological law would be something, well, in society, we just agree on it versus a law of thought, which is what we would you know, laws of logic actually are, is that they're abstract, they're in the mind, they're not something physical. He says they are laws of thought which are interpreted by men, promulgated by men. So you have these laws of logic, and, he, and Stein is saying they're just agreed upon by people. So we just got together and said, you know what, we disagree that the law of non-contradiction is a good law. We all agree that contradictions are always false, but they're false just because we agree on it. Now, it doesn't go into this, but can you pick that apart for a second? Is it really the case that the law of non-contradiction is just something we agree on? Could, wouldn't that also mean that we could also agree that the law of non-contradiction is bogus and that contradictions are okay? If it's a convention. But can we do that? Can, you, can we just say, you know what, let's all just decide that contradictions are true. My car is in the parking lot and my car is not in the parking lot at the same time. Can we do, can we do that? We can't do that, can we? It's not something that we just agree upon. It's something that we are bound to because that's the nature of reality, right? So this is where it gets uh, important. And this is kind of the, this is basically where Stein lost the debate. This isn't the first cross-examination and it just goes downhill. So he says, so Bonson says, okay, are they material in nature? What's that mean? Material in nature. Yeah. And Stein says, how can a law be material? And Bonson says, that's the question I'm going to ask you. He says, I would say no. Okay, so that's the end of that. that that's Bonson asking Stein. Right? It r turns around, you remember, one, one minute later. Dr. Bonson, would you call, call God material or immaterial? Bonson says, immaterial. What is something that's immaterial? Something not extended in space. Can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? <laughs> Laws of logic. <laughs> Boom. I heard this part and I was like, yeah. he just lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you guys remember, the audience knew oh, it too. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> the room erupted in laughter because the, the turnaround here was immediate 
It was obvious, and Stein didn't see it. How can, in a materialist worldview, can he believe in something that is immaterial, right? And then he's going to argue, well, is there anything that you can think of that's, that's immaterial? And Mons is like, yeah, you just said it, laws of logic, right? So there, there's the inconsistency of his worldview just shown so obviously. That this was it, and this is pretty early in the debate. It's, it's kind of sad, but it's, it's awesome um, from an apologetic standpoint. And then they moderate, can, can you hold that down, please? That's in the transcript <laughs> because <laughs> they're, they're laughing, right? Um, so you get the point, right? That, that right there, this is, this is masterful stuff right here. It's really good. So what we're saying is, is that it, since Dr. Stein cannot make sense out of laws of logic, he can't make sense out of knowledge at all. In fact, he can't make sense out of engaging in this debate because he's trying to use logic. But his worldview can't even account for it, right? You see how his, his legs are knocked out from under him right from the get-go? Bonson can go up in a debate in his opening statement say, you know, you showing up to the debate, the other guy lost. Because it doesn't make sense in his worldview to engage in debate. It doesn't make sense in his worldview for him to be able to know anything. You see this? So this is how we can say, has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? No matter what they say here, ultimately they can't even make sense of arguing. Now, they, and later on in the debate, they, they talk about ethics and things like that. Um, and, and Stein's position. You guys remember what Stein's position is? It's, you know, ethics are agreed upon by Western society. Something to that effect. Remember, what did, how, how would you respond to that? Or how did Bonson respond to that? Let's see if I can find that. Yeah, maybe it wasn't. Was it in this part? I don't remember. So here's somebody. Somebody asked the question. Somebody asked Dr. Stein, according to your definition and basis for evil, why was Hitler's Germany wrong, or was it? Note: Jews and others were defined as non-persons, so their happiness doesn't really count. Once again, according to your definition and basis for evil, why was Hitler's Germany wrong, or was it? Stein says, well, Germany is a part of what of the Western European tradition. Okay, it's not. It's not deepest Africa or someplace on Mars. They have the same Judeo-Christian background and basically the same connection with the rest of the developed world. So therefore, the standards of morality have been worked out as consensuses of that society and as consensuses of that society apply to them too. They can't arbitrarily, or Hitler can't arbitrarily say, well, I'm not going to, to go, I'm not going by the consensuses that genocide is evil and wrong. I'm just going to change it and make it right. He, is not, he, just, he, has, he has not the prerogative to do that. Neither does Germ, the German society as a whole. Because it's still a larger part of society, part of larger society, which you might call Western society. So even though morality is a consensus, it's not a consensus of one person or two people, it's a consensus of entire civilizations, and he cannot just arbitrarily do that. So what he did was evil and wrong. Man, that, that's his argument. Now, you guys probably already see some just basic informal logical fallacies in that. You guys, what, what, what do you see? Anything? A faulty appeal to something. Majority. Majority, right? Yeah. What, about, what about Western society has some sort of authority to dictate what is ethically right and wrong? Why? Right? And then the question is, why Western society? Define Western society and why that? Why not just Germany? Or why not other nations too? Like, what, where, where is the lines and the borders drawn on this consensus for what's right and wrong? 
So here's Dr. Bonson's one-minute rebuttal. Dr. Sine continues to beg the most important questions that are brought up. Okay, begging the question. That's what he's referring to. He tells us that Hitler's Germany was wrong because Hitler or the German people didn't have the right to break out of the consensus of Western civilization. Why not? Why is there any moral obligation by Hitler and the German people to live up to the past tradition of Western morality? In an atheist universe, there's no answer to that question. He gives the answer, but it's totally arbitrary. Right. So he only has one minute to answer, but that, that is basically it. Why not? Well, he, he's not allowed to go against the Western society. Well, why not? Right? There's that question we're asking. Why? What's the reason for that? Right? So, so Stein's answer is arbitrary. He's saying, well, Hitler's not allowed to arbitrarily change it. Well, why not? So there, it's really not a good answer, is it? So they talk about ethics and things like that. Um, so, does that make sense? Are any questions about this? I think we probably just move on here in a minute. Good. Okay. So, the transcendental argument, arguing for the truth of Christianity by the impossibility of it being false, right? And you do that by giving any of the preconditions for knowledge and showing how if you remember, there's two approaches to the Bible. If you start, if you presuppose the Bible is God's word, your worldview can make sense of ethics and laws of logic and nature being uniform and your memory being reliable and your senses being reliable. All the things that make knowledge possible, you can account for those prerequisites. If you start over here that the Bible is not God's word, your belief in ethics is arbitrary and inconsistent, just like Stein's. Well, it's Western society. Well, that's arbitrary. Why? Why can't they just change things? Your belief in laws of logic is inconsistent and arbitrary, just like Dr. Stein. It's inconsistent with his worldview, and he can't make sense of it. Right? Uniformity of nature, you name it. All the other things we could talk about. He can't make sense of why knowledge is possible at all in his worldview. So what is Dr. Stein and every other unbeliever doing when they make knowledge claims and when they assume ethics and when they assume laws of logic and all of that? They're not pulling that from their worldview because it's not there. Where are they getting it? From what's like on their hearts written by God. Right. So they're borrowing from the Christian worldview. Yeah. Unwittingly. But they are. Um, and that's what Romans 1 teaches us. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? But they do know God. And that's that, that uh, interesting reality of self-deception that scripture talks about. They're self-deceived. They say, yeah, I don't believe in God, but yet, yet their whole life shows that they know him. They know he exists. They know who he is. right? But they're suppressing that, and they've convinced themselves of that. They've suppressed the truth, deceived themselves. But nevertheless, they show it by their actions. Just like that old little phrase, actions speak louder than words. That's basically what you have here. When they um, make ethical claims, Hitler was wrong. That's an ethical claim he makes but he can't give a reason for it. It only makes sense from a Christian worldview to, to say that. Because his answer is fallacious. It's not, it's not a sound answer. It's a faulty appeal to majority. Um, and it's arbitrary. So you guys get the, you get the picture? You guys following this? Okay. I think you guys get it pretty well. And we have more to cover and stuff that we'll, we'll get into uh, as we go. And we have a number of classes left, I think. But... Um, and I remember last time we, we practiced and you guys did rather well. So I think if you have questions, don't feel bad to ask. 
but I think we're ready to, to move forward. Does that sound good? Okay. So what I want to do now is kind of get back into the regular. So we covered presupp we've covered presuppositionalism, we've covered the transcendental argument, right? But there are other apologetic methods that Christians will use that I'm going to argue that we should not use because the arguments are either unfaithful to God and or bad arguments, like unsound arguments. Okay, so I want to um, talk about that today, and um, if you guys are ready, we can just go ahead and get into that. Sound good? Okay. All right, so number one, types of Christian apologetic methods that we would reject would be, number one, arguing for a general deity and not the Christian God. This is exactly what Dr. Bonson was saying he was not doing, right? Arguing for theism, but not Christian theism, right? So basically it's like this. Let me just get it, give it to you straight. If you're not arguing for the Christian God, you're arguing for an idol, right? Because there is no other God, okay? And basically if you convince an unbeliever to believe in some God, but not the Christian God, you really haven't done him any good, right? Because what, what's the difference between being an atheist, but now he's convinced to be an idolater, is that great? Is that good for his soul? No. Idolatry is, is no different, really, than atheism at, at its base root. It's still unbelief. Okay? So that's, that's no good. We're not going to try to get somebody just to believe in some God out there. Right? We're trying to argue for the true God, the trinity of Scripture. Okay? So I'm faithful to God to do this. It's really sinful in his sight. Remember, um, if you think about in the Old Testament, if you're in the, the Israelites, right, they're surrounded by the pagans, right? They're surrounded by, you know, the Philistines or the Assyrians or whatever, right? You got Baal worship and stuff. And imagine if, you know, for example, they were doing apologetics, right? And they weren't arguing for Yahweh, their God. They say, well, look, all you have to do is believe in some God out there. I mean, you know, just some God who kind of created you. Is that something that, that Yahweh, that God, wants them to do? No, their, their pagan neighbors are already doing that. They believe in some God out there who created them, right? That's the problem. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what they're doing. They need to be brought over to the, to the truth, right? So we're not arguing for some sort of fake deity. We're arguing for Christian theism, okay? Um. So there's plenty of examples of this. Let's go, let's look at um, some of these verses. You guys grab, somebody get Exodus 20, verse 3. You guys maybe know that, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Someone else, Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, and then 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. I can get Isaiah. Okay, thanks. All right, Exodus 20, verse 3. Okay, you shall have no other gods before. Okay, that's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. So we're not going to try to argue somebody into believing in some other god, right? Some, some ill-defined, some sort of general something out there that's not really a Christian theism. It's just kind of some creator god kind of vague thing. We're not doing that. Isaiah 41. Uh, <clears throat> Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome, or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we may be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I mean, what, what, an, what an amazing section. There's God mocking the idols. And he's saying, okay, idols, um, why don't you tell us about the future? You're gods, right? Tell me about the future. Oh, you know what? Tell me about the past. Tell me about what happened in history. He says, you know what? Do anything. Do anything at all. <laughs> you know? Do something and show that you really are gods. He's saying, look, here's a statue. It's a statue. It can't do a thing. Right? And he says, those who choose you are detestable. Is that what we're trying to do then apologetics is to get people to choose some idol who can't do anything because it doesn't exist? God says, no, 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 no. The real God is what we're dealing with here. Of course, obviously. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 46. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whenever, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom there are all things, and we in him, the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Right, so what he's saying is there's only one God. There are many things out there called gods and many things out there called lords. But he's saying, in reality, there's only one God. Okay, everything else is idolatry. It's not real. Okay, so we're not arguing for that. We're arguing for specific Christian theism in defense of the Christian worldview not some theistic worldview. Okay? If we're going to be biblical, we're arguing for the true God. Does that make sense? It's not that hard, but it needs to be said. Okay? All right, next one then is what I call subjectivism, which is pretty pathetic. It's arguing for that someone should believe the Christian faith because the person feels Christianity has benefited them in some way. So subjective means based on you know, feelings and opinions and stuff. Objective means um, not influenced by feelings and things like that. So that's the Christian worldview. What that means is like this. It may say, I found happiness in Jesus. Therefore, Christianity is true. Okay, well, sure. I hope you have. But that's not a good apologetic argument. Okay. Um, personal testimony about your feelings is not apologetics. Okay, it's not a reason defense. Um, just because you've had some sort of benefit from it doesn't necessarily prove that the Christian worldview is true. Um, somebody might say, Christianity provides meaning for my life, therefore Christianity is true. Variations of that. Well, if Christianity weren't true, my life would be meaningless, so I just choose to believe it because it just makes me feel better, <laughs> right? The problem with that is that although, you know, it, it does, there's many blessings and things like that um, being in Christ, um, I've had a Mormon missionary argue the same way. He said, I know Mormonism is true because when I read the Book of Mormon, I really felt that it was true. So Mormonism is true. Okay. See, see how, how um, subjective arguments really are not, not arguments really at all. They're not really arguing on the, on the merits of the worldview. That's what Bonson was saying we're not going to do in his opening statement. We're not going to argue based on personal feelings, right? Because atheists can say, well, um, you know, being, being an atheist really makes me happy, right? So these arguments, because they're arbitrary, well, I just feel it's true, they can be reversed. 
So I can say to the Mormon, I know Mormonism is not true because when I read the Book of Mormon, I really felt that it was false. Therefore, Mormonism is false, right? Um, so Christians will argue this way sometimes too. We don't want to do that. Um, so we need to give a reason defense. We're going to give an argument, prove it, and not just say, well, I like the idea or I feel that it's true. Remember, those are logical fallacies, right? Appeal to consequences fallacy where it's, um, I really like the idea of it, so therefore it's true. Okay. Um, so we don't want to, arguments like this, Christianity has given me so much peace and provides meaning for my life, so it must be true. They can really be denied by the critic, and they can say, at being an atheist has provided peace for my life, right? And provides meaning for my life. So atheism is true. Is this reversible? It's, it's not arguing based on objective facts. It's arguing based upon personal feelings, right? And personal feelings are not a good test of, of the truth of this, of something, okay? So the truth of Christianity is objectively true and therefore doesn't depend upon our personal feelings or experience in order for it to be true. That makes sense? So you probably know this. I'm kind of just going through this kind of quick because I, I feel like you guys probably get that. We're not just saying, well... I really, it really helped me in my life, and that's therefore it's true. Just, just believe it; it'll help you too. Because that's reversible. That's, you know, subject to interpretation, um, as well. Okay, that makes sense. Questions? Okay, relativism. This is really pathetic as well. Arguing that truth is relative to the person is not absolute. Characterized by that slogan, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Relative is relativism is inconsistent. We've talked about this before, um, so it shouldn't be used. But sometimes people who are professing Christians will, will use this argument, and we cannot. Um, they'll say something like this, Christianity is true for me. It may not be your truth, but it's mine. You may want to try to consider being a Christian because it's really helped me be at peace, knowing that God's always there for me. So kind of a mix between relativism and subjectivism like we just talked about. Hey man, it's not your truth maybe, but you know, it might help you out. Maybe just adopt it. Is that is that consistent with the the Bible's claims? Does the Bible say, well, the Bible this is a truth among a bunch of truths. Is that what the Bible claims about the gospel and about Jesus and stuff like that? Did Jesus say, "I'm a way, I'm a truth," right? He didn't say that, did he? Right? He is the way, the truth. Okay? So this happens. I've heard this before. It's no good. It's not a truth. It's the truth. Okay? Um, all right. So relativism is irrational, like I said, on space because it violates the law of non-contradiction. All right? So say person A says, my truth is that there's a God. There's one God. And person B says, my truth is that there are no gods. But then somebody says, well, they're both right. Can they both be right? Well, they're contradictory claims. They both can't be right, right? It can't be the case that there is a God and not a God at the same time, right? So the contradiction is that they both can't be true at the same time. They violate, they violate the law of non-contradiction, okay? Moreover, if you're a relativist and you're professing uh, to be a Christian, why even argue with people? Because my truth is Christianity, but whatever yours is, is equally valid. So why should you even become a Christian? Because you're right too. Atheist, Buddhist, Mormon, it doesn't matter. You're all right. 
It destroys evangelism. There's no need for it because everybody's right. It destroys apologetics. Why would you do it? Why would you argue with somebody who's right? Of course, as we see, they both can't be right, but that's the position, relativist position, is that everybody is, what they believe is true, at least for them, which is good enough. That's all that really matters. Okay. So we can't do that. We can't be relativists ever. Okay. We're, the Christian claim is that this is the objective truth, and anybody who denies it is, is wrong. In the culture that you and I live in, that is heresy to people. That's so ugly to people, it's detestable that we would say there's only one truth. But that's the case. And that's something that we're standing on and defending. We're not saying, yeah, everybody's okay. No, no, no. We're saying this is the only truth. We're, 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 if we believe what Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. That's it. We're not all good. It's got to come back to the big, the um, the uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not even on the path to understanding. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you guys know what the fear of the Lord means? I've always heard it like like having a certain amount of like respect. I've always heard it like from Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big aspect of it. Reverence, respect for God. But what that really translates to is you trusting what he says. That you take his word seriously. The contrast is fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the implication is those who fear the Lord love wisdom and instruction from God. They love his word. They trust him. So when he, gives you a, when he gives a promise, when he gives a warning, when he gives a commandment, you take it all seriously, right? So if God says, if you um, don't believe in Jesus, you'll die in your sins, someone who does not fear the Lord will say, oh, whatever, right? They don't take it seriously. But those who do fear the Lord say, yeah, he's, that's true. I believe what he's saying, right? You're taking his word seriously. So for those who don't fear the Lord... They're not even on the path to, to understanding truth, knowledge, wisdom, right? So when we're saying Christianity is, is true, that's what Proverbs 1-7 is saying too. This is the only way. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, Colossians 2 says. So we're, we're defending the Christian worldview, not saying, hey, it's not, whatever is true for you is fine, but maybe you should just try it out. That makes sense? Questions? Yeah? No? Let me add something to it came to my mind. We're also not doing, this is maybe more on the evangelism side of things, but we're also not doing the try Jesus out 30-day money-back guarantee type of thing. Just, you ever heard of that sort of thing? Just give Jesus a try, man. Like, what do you got to lose? Give him a try. If it doesn't work out, no big deal. Nothing lost. Okay. Take that. And then compare that to what Jesus said. What did Jesus say about following him and the cost of discipleship? You guys remember any, anything that he said about that? You must take up your cross and follow me. And if you don't, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. 
He said, what, what person wants to build a, a tower but doesn't first count the cost to see if he has enough money to finish the tower, right? Enough materials to buy. He says, those people who say, let's just build, let's just build a tower. And they start doing it and say, oh man, we're not even close. We got the foundation laid, but we don't have enough money to build any, put any bricks on this thing. Oh, and they, and they bail out on it. He says, what a fool who does that. It doesn't count the cost. Or what king, when an army's coming against him of 10,000, does he count the cost to see whether he has enough to go out to battle? Right? Or did he just say, well, let's just all go and we'll see what happens. You have to think ahead and count the cost. I think if you don't, you're a fool. He's saying those who follow Christ, he's saying, you better count the cost because it'll cost you your life, he says. It'll cost you everything. Right? The cost of discipleship. Eternal life is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. Right? Salvation is a free gift, but in order to follow Christ, it's going to, you ever loses his life. For Jesus' sake, we'll find it, he said. So there's no, hey, just try it out, no big deal. You can back out later. It's, you better count the cost now, whether you're going to be a disciple of Jesus or not, whether you're going to go all in or not, because that's it. Those are your options. You either go all in or you don't. Either you take up your cross and you die daily, or you don't, right? So that's the seriousness of it. In fact, it's pretty funny, and not in a ha-ha way, but how backwards uh, modern evangelistic methods can be. Jesus, Jesus basically is saying, hey, you want to follow me? Hold up a second. You better count. You better see if you really want to. You better count the cost. Now, is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whoever loses his life will find it. In fact, it's the only way. Is that you lose, you get rid of everything you're willing to set aside. No longer do you view yourself as the Lord of your life. Now you recognize it's Jesus and you are following him. He's your commander, right? But the... Although you'll lose everything that you thought had value, it doesn't really. So ultimately you gain, uh, you follow Jesus, you have eternal life, and you have all, you have him, right? Wait, worth much more. What, what does Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Nothing, right? So it's totally worth it. But you have to count the cost and say, am I, am I really going to lose, give up my life? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to no longer try to be my own God, but I'm going to actually go and follow Jesus. That's huge. So we don't tell people, hey, it's no big deal. We don't do that. It is a big deal. Does that make sense? So we don't say, hey, give it a try. Nothing to lose here. That's not true. Okay, we're going to tell, we need to tell them, hey, this is, this is serious, but it's, it's worth it, right? Um, so we don't want to go against what Jesus himself taught about discipleship. Okay? That makes sense? Questions? Comments? Anything? Okay. Why don't we take a few minute break and then we're going to get into um, arguments that are less ridiculous and um, unfaithful. We're going to get into probably the most predominant type of, of Christian apologetics uh, other than you know, presuppositionalism, which I've been teaching you. There's the other type, which is classified under evidentialism, and we'll cover that um, after our break, okay? So let's come back at uh, 9.50.